Good afternoon, everyone. Um, this is John McElwain with Equal Hope, and I'm very excited today to have our guest today on Dr. Larry Goodman. Dr. Goodman has spent his entire career on the West Side of Chicago. Uh, he began his career as an infectious disease doctor, uh, ultimately ending up as the CEO of Rush University, University Medical Center. Um, Dr. Goodman and I have, have, have a personal relationship, so at some point in this, I know I will accidentally revert to his first name, so I want to confirm in recording that it's okay if I do so. <laughs> Please do so immediately. Okay, terrific. Uh, so Larry Goodman uh, was the CEO of Rush University, University Medical Center from February of 2002 until May of 2019. At the time uh, Larry took over uh, the, the medical center, it was a, a difficult time financially for uh, the health center. And when he retired, uh, things had turned around quite remarkably. So uh, Larry, why don't you share with us a little bit of sort of the time when you took over, what you saw, and uh, that'll be the foundation for our conversation. Thanks, John. Well, as you point out, I've been at Rush, um, included in my training for quite a while by the time I was asked to be CEO. Um, and Rush was having a number of challenges, which were not unusual in healthcare at that time. And still, it's a challenging business as far as just making the operational business thing work. Um, at that time, Rush was losing a fair amount of money. Uh, and that was probably the number one challenge. The second was we had some aging facilities. So we had two issues we needed to take care of. However, the most important things were that the quality of care and the quality of the education and the research were outstanding and the people were outstanding and the board was tremendous. So the harder things to do had already been done and were already terrific. Uh, I was fortunate to have the support of all those entities. That is, the board was phenomenally supportive. The management team was great. And most importantly, the people that worked at Rush, once they understood what was going on, dug right in. People stayed, people worked hard. And we were fortunate that Rush has uh, done quite well, both financially. We built a new hospital, built a new orthopedic building, part of the parking structure and a power plant, certainly invested in people and programs over the years, and things have gone well, really much to the credit of all the individuals I listed. When you you left uh, in 2019, um, you, I think, were in a very good, you were Rush University Medical Center was in a very healthy position, both in terms of revenues, in terms of sort of mission, community engagement, employee satisfaction, all those other things that are crucial to the well-being of, of an institution. Um, what do you attribute that to, to the sort of the, the positive feelings um, that got rush into the place it was and, uh, and the success that you had? Well, you know, I think that there's no question. And I've, I've been one that have has incredible faith in people and that um, by, as I said earlier, by being transparent about where we are, and what we need to do to be a stronger institution and listening to people when we start articulating a vision of where we want to go and making sure that resonates with as many people as possible, that's been pretty effective. And I, I think that uh, what's happened over the years is that uh, the ideas that have come up at Rush often come up from people in the organization. Um, they're surfaced and we've been fortunate enough to, I think, select a path that has been really effective. I think with a lot of the things that have happened over the years, uh, for example, the bed tower would be an example of something that that butterfly-shaped white building on the Eisenhower Expressway, that shape didn't come from architects. It came from our nurses. They looked at the shapes of wards 
and thought the sight lines would be better along the wings of a bed tower shaped that way. They drew it out. We gave it to the architects and that's what they built. Um, It was the emergency department and infectious disease people and others who thought we could do a better job for the city of Chicago if the hospital we built was prepared also for basically a pandemic and other serious infectious diseases. So when we opened it, uh, certainly there was no looming, you know, COVID at that time, but we wanted to make sure we could be that hospital for Chicago. And so behind the scenes, we had all kinds of facilities to do a better job as a hospital to accommodate that potential need for the community. Those things got lots of people involved at Rush and I think made them, you know, even firmer stakeholders and it worked for us. Right. That's that's awesome. Yeah. And to, to have foreseen, although you didn't foresee, but to have foreseen the need for a pandemic response was uh, pretty fortuitous for sure. And for our, our listeners, I do want to sort of share many of you probably know, but uh, Equal Hope has a, a strong relationship with Rush University Medical Center. Uh, Rush was instrumental in the launch of the Metropolitan Chicago Breast Cancer Task Force, our uh, original name. Um, we, we are a separate 501c3 entity. We're governed by an independent board. Uh, on our board, we have several doctors or healthcare professionals from Rush, as well as from Northwestern, as Loyola, um, as well as uh, Advocate Health uh, and others. But we do have a, a strong relationship. We are housed on the Rush campus and we uh, have a contractual relationship where Rush provides us some back office support, both in HR as well as we use their server. And we're you know, blessed to have a, a Rush email address, which is, is helpful uh, for us in the marketplace. So there is a relationship, but uh, Equal Hope is a separate 501c3 entity. Larry, talk to us a little bit about uh, sort of the ideas behind uh, Equal Hope or the Breast Cancer Task Force and, and why you decided to throw your weight, so to speak, and your resources behind a collaborative effort uh, to address health disparities. Well, certainly, John, there's a num- there are a number of great activities going on in the city. So it's a fair question of why we picked this thing to get more involved in. And I think one of the big reasons was uh, we recruited David Ansel to Rush. Uh, Rush uh, recruited David uh, some years ago. He became our chief medical officer. And David was one of the authors on work done at then the Mount Sinai Urban Health Institute um, that demonstrated the significant gap in survival between black and white women with breast cancer in Chicago, which was worse than other cities. Certainly there was a gap in other cities as well, but this was worse. And moreover, it begged the question of why. And so as David was working through the why of that question, he and I got to be friends and started to work together. And there are all kinds of stark realities, uh, not just in healthcare, but certainly all over Chicago and in life that one sees that are really disturbing. But here's one that's like right there. We are certainly an area and an institution that wants to do a great job in breast cancer. And yet here we were part of a city that was part of this problem. What I was impressed about the Metropolitan Chicago Breast Cancer Task Force, which was the name at the time, was that they developed a a list of sort of hypotheses of why this might be true, and then a plan and how to test those hypotheses. And the plan involved a lot of partnerships with other organizations, sharing quality data on mammography and access to mammography of of high quality. Uh, And most importantly, transparency, not just transparency to the providers, but transparency to 
women who would be screened and to the public at large. Uh, I really liked that idea, and I thought it had a great potential to answer the question of whether this was inadequate quality, inadequate access, some other factor, because it couldn't be explained by genetic differences, for example, or other differences that were intrinsic uh, to the women in these study populations. And so when it turned out that not only was the task force seeking um, some types of support from Rush, but the kinds you listed, um, we decided that we could provide that. That was a small thing to provide for something that was so promising. And we certainly wanted to participate in the kinds of evaluations that the task force was doing. What's been incredibly remarkable is the great success that has happened over the years with significant reductions in that gap. Most importantly, reductions greater than any other city and reductions that when studied against other cancers to see if there's some other impact going on in Chicago that is positively affecting this gap because there is a gap in other kinds of cancers in the city as well. Um, no such movement has been seen in Chicago cancer gaps as big or as significant as the one in breast cancer. So I believe this really is due to the work of this group and it's really been impressive. Thank you. We're, we're excited about the role that we have played and, and we, you know, we've been a catalyst in some sense, but there are a lot of partners who have made this possible. Um, our relationship with Rush as well as with Loyola and Advocate and uh, Sinai and, and, and so many others. So um, it's been exciting. And one of the ex challenges for us, challenges, opportunities for us has been to think strategically about, okay, we now have this successful model and a successful platform, where do we go with it from here? What's what's next? And um, as you know, a couple of doctors came to us, one from Rush and one from U, U Chicago uh, Medical Center, and they were both recognizing a uh, an alarming level of uh, late stage cervical cancer diagnoses coming in for young uh, or mid middle aged African American women, and said, you know, why is this happening when if it's dealt with early on in life, it's almost 100% preventable. Um, and so they came to us and said, would you add this to your, your platform? And uh, it made strategic sense for us uh, in an effort to uh, approach women's health in a more holistic fashion um, to add that. And then certainly with the pandemic, which no one could have foreseen, we have found uh, that we are, you know, I, I have described Equal Help as being the head of the spear. So we've had the city come to us in the county as they look to get into more difficult to reach zip codes and um, and to get vaccines into arms. Uh, and we've been become a main conduit, a major conduit, among many others um, who are helping to make sure that people have the information they need, people have access uh, to vaccines and that they're able to get them. So it's been it's been a, a challenging year in a lot of ways, but uh, we found that the, the platform we've made has value beyond just breast cancer diagnosis and treatment. Yeah, and you know, of course, cervical cancer is one of those cancers where screening makes a great deal of sense. So mm -hmm. there is, uh, while it's attractive to think, can't we screen for every cancer? Should we get total body scans on a regular basis? those things tend to give more false positives than any real benefit. But cervical cancer is one where there's a, a readily available screening technique. It's cheap and easy. Um, and the cancer itself, the other part about screening is ideally the cancer should be slow growing so that 
if you screen whatever that's every six months, 12 months, 24 months, whatever the screening methodology is, it's unlikely that a serious cancer would have grown or worse metastasized between screening times. And cervical cancer fits that. So when there's a gap um, in survival, you look at that and say, wait a minute, you know, this is not for want of some fancy test or some incredibly expensive approach. This is a basic thing that should be available and should be utilized. So what are we missing? So I think it makes a lot of great sense that that the task force became Equal Hope and went after cervical cancer next because there's an opportunity there to do a much better job. Yeah, thank you. Um, Our focus, you know, when you sort of highlighted uh, the early hypotheses that we came up with and the, the testing those hypotheses is really looking at structural racism across the healthcare system, how how and where that emerges and how we can overcome those barriers. Talk to us a little bit about sort of Rush's perception of, of those barriers and how um, you guys saw that as an issue and, and tried to address it. Well, I think that um, it, it starts again with data. And so it starts with outcomes, whether in this case, breast cancer, or it could be cervical cancer, or it could just be survival. And uh, in Dr. Ansel's book, The Death Gap, we saw survival, and there's a kind of a, a diagram looking at L-stops and the average survival along the L-stops going west from the loop out west all the way to the western suburbs. And it's a, it's a dismal story. And you see the survival differences. And then there is something that the city of Chicago has, which is a map Um, that maps out basically negative social determinants that are concentrated in various areas. And once again, that map overlaps, unfortunately, well with where survival is the lowest, negative social determinants seem to be most concentrated in those places. That would be bad enough. But when those places tend to be demarcated also by race, it's an undeniable connection. Um, and something that I think needs to be addressed and called out. And I think that's what you're talking about, is that this type of racism is is something that unfortunately we're all a part of. Um, It's our city, it's our country. And to attempt to address these things without calling it out, I think uh, isn't accurate and it's not respectful. Agreed. Um, well, we've been in existence for, for 12 years, um, or maybe a little, maybe 13 at this point. Uh, and as you referenced earlier, you know, we've been able to, uh, see a significant drop in the mortality rate for African-American women in Chicago diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, we're thrilled to see that, but we're still at a pretty high rate, uh, compared to comparable white women. I think, uh, the latest uh, data that I've seen or heard about was, uh, a, an African-American woman diagnosed with breast cancer is 32% more likely to, to die from the diagnosis than white women. Now, that's down from 62% when we were created, so uh, still is rather significant. But the point being that uh, we still have a lot of work t- to do. Um, and, you know, you'd referenced earlier that uh, it was not a genetic issue, that this was a structural issue. And I can't tell you the number of conversations I've had where people, you know, still say, well, it, it's it's there are genetic causes of this. And I said, well, if that were true, then wouldn't it also be true in New York City or wouldn't it be true in San Francisco or in other major metropolitan areas that you arguably would should be comparable? Uh, and those disparities were not. So, you know, obviously we're doing something 
I'm doing something wrong. There, there, there are causes here that are greater than uh, uh, than we think, and we need to really address them from the root causes rather than just the uh, around the edges, working around the edges on them. I think that's right. The genetics of cancer are being uh, better and better understood, and they're more and more complicated. So that I think most people used to think there were, you know, receptor positive cancers with estrogen, progesterone, and then Herceptin and other things, and her two new receptors. And now we know that most cancers are far more complex and far more individual to the patient, which is a good thing in the sense as we think about treatments. It could turn out that there could be some genetic variants of cancers that are different in different groups of individuals. Um, but that is not the cause of the great discrepancy we're seeing in the populations that you're talking about. Yeah. And so I, I think that while there may be some variations that are important to know about at some point, especially around treatments, it doesn't change the importance of the work that's being done or the dramatic impact the kinds of strategies that Equal Hope is doing will have on these numbers. Yeah. Well, as we um, sit here today, is there any advice that you would have for uh, Equal Hope, our board, or, or our clients? Um, we are looking at uh, the next year, two years, three years, and, and thinking through strategically what we need to do to continue the positive trajectory of, of Equal Hope and of uh, some of the advances that we have been uh, fortunate to be a part of. Um, but what, what would your advice be to the Equal Hope team? Well, first, we're talking about a team that has had a more positive impact than almost any other team or program in the country. So it's a bit presumptuous for anybody to give this group advice. I mean, the group has done a great job. I think it's more to continue in this kind of work. And I think, uh, I suppose there are a couple of things that are especially important. Uh, one of the more important things boards do is they identify leaders. I think Anne-Marie Murphy is an outstanding leader. And I think that the people that are working at Equal Hope and working in the community to forge these relationships are superb. One thing we haven't talked probably enough about are the partnerships um, that are such a key part of this. You can have a great strategy, you can have you know, good leadership in many areas, but if you don't have partnerships with other organizations and the ability to interact respectfully and appropriately with community members, you can't do this work. Um, that's the kind of skill set that Equal Hope has. And I think it's a, a critically important reason why it's been so successful. I think there's a message there beyond the hypotheses originally for each one of these cancers and the outcomes that are reached, which is that what is stopping other organizations from establishing partnerships around other issues that they're aiming to address? Because what those partnerships allow is to dream big. I mean, that's, that's really, there's only so much, for example, Rush could ever do as a single organization as large as it is. When we start looking at partnerships with, in this case, Equal Hope, but the work that's been done with Westside United, um, our partnership with Malcolm X College, all of those things allow us to think about solving problems, not ourselves, but being part of a solution to problems that are the big problems of the day and things that inspire us and want us to correct them. And I think it gets people working especially hard and about the right kinds of things. Um, so I think, I think keeping going with this and also getting your story out are two really important things. 
Agreed, and, and uh, appreciate uh, the, those thoughts. Um, partnerships are key. Do you think that it had um, sort of its inch, its unique for competitors to come together in in this way? I mean, not that Rush and Sinai are competitors, but you're both healthcare providers in the West Side, and um, I, one of the things that I think makes Equal Hope unique is that we, we you know we've built this collaborative partnership among many different organizations, including community activists and, and actual residents. When we started our work, our focus was with the residents themselves and said, what is it we can do to help bring about better outcomes? And, and the feedback we got was terrific um, in, in shaping that. So uh, do you think the competition between healthcare providers was is part of the obstacle to these kind of partnerships? So I think it can be, but I think what's interesting is it can be more in the minds of people than the actual action of it. I think that um, I would say there's two important things here. First, Chicago is a great town. People collaborate and communicate pretty well across seemingly competitive organizations. Prior to Equal Hope and prior to our involvement with Westside United, we always had good working relationships and communications with the other hospitals in town, FQHCs. Uh, businesses, that was not so much the issue. Certainly, at times, we commit, we competed for sometimes talented individuals, sometimes patients, but and everybody wants to be known as the best. But um, that didn't stop us from collaborating in research. We have a big research collaboration with the University of Chicago. Uh, we have, we're part of something called the Medical Home Network with Cook County and Sinai mm-hmm. and St. Anthony and Federal Qualified Health Centers. I mentioned the city of Chicago's uh, city colleges. That's not just in Russia's DNA. I think that's kind of part of Chicago. Yeah. I think what has given partnerships and what I would say has been termed in literature like collaboratives a bad name is that they tend to be full of organizations that do feel strongly about a topic and get together to try to move the ball, but sometimes don't hold themselves accountable for actual work done, metrics, and, you know, not just what would we like to do, but what are we each going to do to make this thing happen? And did it work or did it not work? And that's where uh, another great strength of Equal Hope is there are specific goals and metrics and expectations for the partners. And I think actually people normally appreciate that and then get even more involved. And obviously it, it reaches the conclusion that you want, which is you begin to move the ball forward. Yeah. Really, uh, it's interesting um, that that can I mean that can be an obstacle or preventative of these kind of collaboratives. But we're yeah we're excited about um, having a host of variety of partners and and building on that. I mean we're continually I uh, spend a lot of time on the phone and sending emails to folks to continue to further those relationships. So. And I think that's one thing that you know going back to advice and it's not just to the Equal Hope leadership, but um, it's really to anybody. It's what we think about is if you have an idea and it requires other people to be involved and even participate to the point of putting up something, it could be people, sometimes it's actual financial support, but more often it's people and thought time. Um, just ask. It is surprising how many people want to help um, in a substantive way if they understand where their help fits in to solve an important problem. Yeah. Interesting point. Just ask. <laughs> right. Well, this has been terrific. This is helpful. Um, I, I know you have uh, someplace else to go. And uh, 
I'm, it, one of the challenges I've had as we've launched the podcast is really uh, being able to keep my line of questionings to within a half hour because I think uh, they go too long. <laughs> and I, so I think we're kind of getting close to that now. I uh, want to thank you for making time for this. Um, when it's all completed and it goes in the marketplace, I'll send you a link so you can you can uh, hear it yourself. Um, but we do appreciate um, all that you've done for for Equal Hope, uh, as well as for the city of Chicago with Rush and uh, and look forward to uh, furthering our relationship as we move forward. John, it was my pleasure and really sincere congratulations to you and everybody at Equal Hope. It's made a huge difference to so many people in Chicago. Thank you. We, uh, we appreciate it and we will be in touch. Thanks. Have a great day. See ya. Bye.